footing. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax, and the bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Then Samson said, With a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. When he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone, and the place was called Ramathlehi. Because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, You have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi, and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned and he revived. So the spring was called En-Hakor, and it is still there in Lehi. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. I'll just hand over to James. A question for you. Where do you think the nicest place to live in Britain is? (laughs) You joke, but you shouldn't be surprised to know that according to the BBC... Bourneville is the nicest place to live in Britain. There we are. It's on the BBC website. I'll read from it. Bourneville, just the way it rolls off your tongue makes it sound like a nice place to live. Academics from the Joseph Rowntree Foundation say the Birmingham estate is quite simply one of the nicest places to live in Britain. Bourneville's success comes down to a mix including quality homes, neighbours from different backgrounds, good services and open space. Residents more actively commit to the area's prosperity, creating a virtuous circle of neighbourliness. Across a range of indicators, Bourneville residents are simply happier. If you want to live in harmony with your neighbour, there's sometimes a price to pay. In Bourneville, people want to pay it. So, Bourneville was a place of comfort. Comfortable houses, comfortable gardens, comfortable neighbours. We are the people that are comfortable. And since Riverside established this congregation in Bourneville two years ago, our joy is now complete. What what more could we want? (laughs) Of course, not all's perfect. You don't need me to tell you that. Scratch the surface, you'll discover all sorts of problems uh, in Bourneville, just like elsewhere. And uh, turning to today's passage, we'll be looking at a nation that became comfortable and wanted to live in harmony with their neighbours. But unlike us, that harmony was not a good thing and the price was too, pa- too high to pay. So there came a rebellious youth who set out to disturb the comfortable compromise of the Israelites. Now we're looking in this series at Old Testament, sorry, biblical characters and how they might relate to a life stage. I have to say firstly, I do not particularly identify with Samson. Okay, let's get that clear. Hair, <laughs> too short. Um, I don't go around touching dead bodies on the whole. Um, I am known to have a drink. <laughs> So I'm not a Nazarite. Sarah certainly does not identify with Delilah or any of the, the other women in Samson's story. Let's get out that one out of the way, okay? Okay, a first thing that we learn from Samson's story in the passage is that the people of Israel and Samson were called to be different. They were called to be a nation set apart. They were, they were no different to other people of their time, indeed to people of all times, but God decided that through them, he would bring salvation to the whole world. They were to demonstrate the righteousness of his justice and the goodness of his grace. And, the, and God said to them that when they entered the promised land, he would, he would drive the other people out of their way. 
Now we might, that's a difficult concept to enter into a land and drive everybody else out. Okay, let's put that to one side for today. Perhaps Tim will answer your questions later about the rightness of that and the implications. But they were told not to associate with other nations and to be distinct. They were told that one of you can rout a thousand men. And they were told to avoid intermingling and intermarrying with the other nations because those nations could become snares and traps, whips for their backs and thorns in their eyes. Yet by the time we get to Judges 15 in the passage we read, we find that again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Now the Philistines were smart. Other nations, like the Midianites and the Ammonites, they opposed the Israelites through military force and cruelty, but this just roused and united the Israelites in opposition. But the Philistines were subtle. They didn't threaten from the outside. They enticed the Israelites in. They absorbed them. They assimilated them. And they tied them in economically and through intermarriage. And this was a far more serious threat to the distinctiveness of Israel and to their survival as a nation. So the Israelites hadn't obeyed everything in the law. They had associated with other nations. They had intermarried. They weren't brave. They weren't courageous. They were comfortable. They got on with their lives. They got on with their neighbors. They discovered the joys and comforts of a compromised middle age. God doesn't leave his people in middle age compromised comfort. He was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. So to the people of Israel, he sent a man called to be set apart from birth within a nation set apart. Now the promise of Samson's birth is almost uncanny in the way that it seems to mirror the promises of Jesus' birth. His mother was visited by an angel who gave the news His father needed to be convinced. He didn't listen to his wife as much as he should have done. Lesson for us there, maybe. Even these days, (laughs) sorry, so a great promise was made. Like Jesus, Samson was to be the deliverer of his people, though his work of deliverance was to be local and time-specific rather than universal and eternal. But it depended on being set apart as a Nazarite. His parents seemed to do everything right, but everything did not go well. The child became a wayward adolescent and a troubled young man. He was driven by feelings and emotions, the very caricature of a troublesome teenager. In fact, this seems a bit unfair on teenagers, actually, to say that Samson's like them. Many of them clearly aren't, uh, thankfully. But you get the point. Samson didn't properly grow up. He didn't learn to manage himself. He broke all the aspects of his covenant. He went against all that his parents had told him. He seemed determined to associate with the Philistines and intermarry with them. He was a womanizer, he was boastful, he was a braggart. He even failed to turn up to his wedding because he'd overdone it at the stag do. (laughs) Don't have it the night before your wedding, you know. um... He went around beating people up, setting fire to their crops just to get revenge. He didn't withstand the pressure of peers. He didn't avoid the temptations of alcohol abuse and loose women. He didn't think through the consequences of his actions. So we call our teenagers to be different for very good reasons. Look at the mess that Samson made as a young man. But even though Samson forgot his covenant with God, God did not forget his covenant with the people of Israel. God transcended the sins and weaknesses of his people. He used the waywardness of Samson to challenge the comfortable compromise of the Israelites. Samson lived carelessly and acted arrogantly but God used him to serve his purposes. 
Perhaps the ultimate test of any parent is to believe that God is working out those purposes, even when everything suggests that's not the case. And for those of us who are middle-aged, I'm not sure, when does middle age start? 40, 50? Philip's saying higher, okay, that's fine, I'll live with that. Do we not enjoy? Do we not indeed seek the comforts of a settled existence? Of course, there's a lot to be said for it. Children are generally best raised in a stable, secure environment. And he nearly said strong and stable there, but I avoided that. (laughs) The backbone of many businesses and public services are the people that work loyally for years. Communities are more peaceful and more flourishing when people are rooted. Churches like this one rely on those that stay in the same place and serve loyally day in, day out for years. There are many middle-aged people still struggling with harmful behaviors. We all know that, we don't need to be told. But many people who are middle-aged, they don't actively fall into a life of debauchery. They're not, their sins are not obvious, they're not sins of excess necessarily. Maybe many of us are like that. But does that make us any different? All around us, many, many people in Bourneville, they live upstanding, decent lives, they work hard, they pay their taxes, they work at their marriages, they bring up their children well, they raise money for charity, they serve in the community. They do all of those things, even if they don't come to church. So how are we different? In our settled lives, there's a danger of stability turning into compromise. We can lose our edge, we don't take risks, we don't set new goals, we don't seek new horizons, we don't dream. What price do we pay for our comfort? How do we avoid the thorns and traps of a compromised middle-aged? Our compromises are probably quite different from those of teenagers and young people. Many of our compromises come from our false idols. The difficulty is that our false idols are usually things that are inherently good. There's nothing wrong with them, but the risk is that we prioritize these things over God. Financial security, perhaps. Who wouldn't want that? An easy life, peace of mind, reputation, a sense of achievement. All good things. But do we prioritize them over God? This is where following Christ becomes truly sacrificial. Many people would want to, and indeed do, give up a harmful, self-destructive lifestyle, if they can, even without a Christian faith. And everybody loves those stories. Go to your friends, neighbors. People love a story of a drug addict who conquered the power of drugs, whether it's through a Christian faith or not. Everybody loves those stories, how could you not? But will we sacrifice good things That's the hallmark of a people that are truly different. The next point we learn from Samson and the passage, it's not about the hair, okay? He was set aside at birth. His hair was not to be cut. I had a, never had a particular desire for long hair. Though I did have a desire for short hair, maybe it didn't make me a good Nazarite. It got me a lot of trouble, age 13, when I decided to get a, go to the barbers, get a number two all over. Not a number two, a number grade two. Um, sorry. <laughs> Don't ask me if you haven't understood, okay. It wasn't an act of rebellion, but for my poor mother, I think it was the worst thing she'd ever seen to see me come home with no hair. My father was fine. He thought it was hilarious. But the crucial thing about Samson's uncut hair was not that it was a sign, was that it was just a sign of the covenant with God. 
His uncut hair was not the substance, it was symbolic, it was ornamental. But the Philistines didn't get this. They didn't know about a God with whom they could have a relationship. Instead, the gods were to be assuaged. They were paid off, manipulated even, by doing certain acts or keeping certain rules. They had no idea where Samson's strength came from. So they suspected it came from specific rites, special clothes, a magic formula. But ultimately, Samson's strength did not come from his uncut hair. That's a a fairly typical picture you might see of Samson. He's just been in prison, actually. His hair's starting to grow. But in all the pictures you see of Samson, it's always assumed he was huge and muscular. But nobody knew where his strength came from. He could well have looked like that, for all we know. Because his strength didn't come from his hair, didn't necessarily come from his, his physique. Nobody knew, or the, the Philistines didn't know where it came from. It came from the Lord. Three times we read that the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. It doesn't say that his long hair made him powerful. Ironically and troublingly, it seems that the Spirit came on, of the Lord came on Samson, even when his intentions weren't pure, even when he was going out to beat up 30 Philistine men just because of his wounded pride. Maybe you know the story of Samson and Delilah in the next chapter that we didn't read and how his hair was cut. And when his hair was cut, he did lose his strength, although the cutting of his hair was the moment that he lost his strength. Ultimately, it was not the reason that he lost his strength. He lost his strength when the Lord left him, not when his hair was cut. He'd broken every bow of his covenant. He'd separated himself from God. He'd broken the relationship So the cutting of his hair was just the final severance of that relationship. It wasn't the last straw. Sorry, it was the last straw, it wasn't the whole thing. And what's our hair? What are the outward displays of religious observance by which we hope to gain strength, to gain God's favor? Is it church going? A good thing. Is it reading the Bible in a year? A good thing. Is it making tithes and offerings? A good thing. But by themselves, these don't make us the objects of God's favor. We can become so concerned with the outward symbols of our faith that we neglect the substance of the relationship. We might have a particular way of doing church that we expect others to respect, to uphold, and to buy into, and why not? When I was growing up in the Anglican church, it was the done thing to pray on your knees, and it wasn't the done thing to raise your hands in worship. Nowadays, it's sometimes the opposite. Of course, getting down on your knees to pray or raising your hands in worship, these can be physical manifestations of an inner spiritual reality, or at least the manifestation of a genuine emotion. There's nothing wrong with them, but in and of themselves, they don't help us, they don't make us gain God's favor. We get God's favor regardless. And so do we expect our children and teenagers to do the same? Do we demand that they have the hair whilst forgetting the covenant? Maybe it's just my impression, but it does seem that many of my peer group who were brought up with a church background have rejected church in all its ways but they've tragically rejected a gospel that they never heard. They've rejected the symbols of the covenant, the lifestyle, the symbols, the rituals, but without ever knowing the substance of the covenant, without having a a relationship with God. As the author C.S. Lewis wrote, remember how much religious education has exactly the opposite effect to that which was intended. How many hard atheists come from pious homes? The symbol without the substance. 
I'm sure those with greater experience of teenagers can help us here, but my own feeling is that with teenagers, with young people, indeed with all of us, the key is not conform to conform and behave. The key is to believe in God and to belong to church. Not outward signs of religious observance or even good behavior, though they're good things. If we, if our teenagers, if we as middle-aged people, or whatever age we are, if we choose to belong and believe, surely we can live whatever hair our teenagers or anybody else might have. And for all of us, we can know that power comes from relationship with God. The Spirit of the Lord empowered Samson, but it didn't dwell in him. But after Pentecost, in the book of Acts, that power is now accessible to us all. So long hair, short hair, no hair, we can have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And we can know that strength that comes from the Lord. And we can encourage our teenagers and young people to know it from a vibrant, intimate relationship with Christ. The third point that we can learn from Samson is that we should tame not that we be not tamed. Through the life of Samson, we see an upward spiral of violence between him and the Philistines. So as we heard in the reading, the Philistines send hundreds of men, if not thousands, to find him and have their revenge. And fearing the Philistines that rule over them and fearing the loss of their comfortable lifestyle, the Israelites hand over their deliverer to their enemy. They show no embarrassment that their, Lord was, their land was occupied by their enemies. They ignore the evidence that the Lord was with Samson. He'd shown what he could do. And he went on to have a victory over a thousand Philistines there and then. It nearly killed him. He was on the point of death. He gave his life for the redemption of his people. But at the point of death, God provides the miraculous life-giving spring of water and Samson's revived. But even then the Israelites don't join in. They don't help him. They don't exploit his victory. We read in the last verse, Samson led the Israelites for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. So it remained a partial compromise victory and Samson ruled over comfortable compromised people. Now there are parallels between Samson and Jesus and we shouldn't, but we shouldn't take them too far, they're, they're imperfect. He was a pale shed, shadow of Christ, he had the wrong motives and he got so much wrong. But the parallels do exist. He was a man set apart at birth to be the deliverers of God's people. He was handed over by those people to their enemies. Both were fighters, albeit in different ways, empowered by the spirit who brought about a great victory by the sacrifice of their lives. But are we like the Israelites? Do we prefer the comfort of the Philistine rulers? Are we embarrassed that our lives, or parts of our lives are still ruled by our enemies, our sinful nature? Do we shun the one who has the power to free us? Do we tame Jesus? Do we hand him over to our enemies? Do we tame ourselves and our teenagers? Why do some of the most traumatic testimonies come from teenagers and young people? Are they more willing to fully give themselves up for Christ? Are they more willing to take risks and sacrifice themselves for the cause? Are they more willing to express their emotion, emotions and to fight? The author Tom Wright said, Jesus, the Jesus we might discover if we really looked is larger, more disturbing, more urgent than we, the church, had ever imagined. We have avoided the huge, world-shaking challenge of Jesus' central claim and achievement. We have reduced the kingdom of God to private piety, the victory of the cross, to comfort for the conscience. Piety, conscience, and ultimate happiness are important, but nearly as important as Jesus himself.
So wise words there from that author. We can be sure that God will not let us settle down and let us merge with the Philistines, whoever they are or whatever they are. He will never lead us to our sinful desires. I don't know if you remember a poster campaign some time ago. The two weren't together in the campaign. You recognize, some of you may recognize the picture on the right. Che Guevara, Marxist revolutionary, lived by the sword, died by the sword, featured on a thousand posters in student bedrooms. Not my hero, certainly not, but certainly untamed. And then there was a, Christi- a, a Christian poster campaign a few years ago with, with a picture on the left. Jesus, the untamed, untamed hero. Meek and mild, yes, but a fighter nonetheless. See what the Bible says about the untamed Jesus. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And when the end will come, and he hands over the kingdom of God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. But what is our fight? Should we go and pick out, pick, sorry, should we go out and pick fights with those outside the church, with those that don't share our beliefs, with atheists, secular authorities, with the Muslims? Absolutely not. They're not our enemies. We should seek to live in harmony with them. And thank God that we do so often. When the Israelites were in exile in Babylon, Jeremiah told them, seek the prosperity, the peace and prosperity of your city. Even in that alien city where they didn't want to live, they were told to seek peace. Are we to be heroes then? Are we to be like Samson? I don't think so. You see, the battle has been won. We were all enemies of God, but Jesus, the warrior, defeated us. When he defeated us, he also saved us. When he died on the cross, he gave us life. And he allows us to enjoy the spoils of his victory. Unlike Samson, he didn't make his enemies into a pile of dead bodies. Instead, he made us, his enemies, into his body, the church. Ephesians 1 says that God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills everything in every way. So the bodies of his enemies became the body of his church. Unlike Samson, who created a pile of dead bodies, Christ created a body. So our fight is to admit our comfortable compromises, our false idols, those things that we seek before God. To be humbled by his battle, by his self-sacrifice, to know his victory over the Philistines within us, to rest in him and not to be a hero, in, his, in our weakness to know his strength, and to let his victory work through us. And when we do that, we can fight from a position of absolute security in his love and in his triumph over our sins, we can go out and confront evil. We can confront evil with good. When we're hurt, we forgive. Those who oppose us, we meet with grace, the true grace that only comes from Christ crucified. It won't make us comfortable But in that way, we can allow him to conquer his enemies and our enemies by the power of his grace and nothing else. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you that though we were your enemies, you defeated our sin by your grace. Thank you that you not only made us your friends, you made us into your body, the church. 
Forgive us our sins, all those things that we would place before you. Forgive us our comfortable compromises. Give us the power by your grace to be a people set apart for you and to proclaim and work out your victory in our lives and in our world. Amen.